0: Let's turn our hearts and our attentions and our minds and our beings to the Word of God now. Turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. We're returning now to this section of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Let's look at verses 15 to 21. I'll read that, for that's the section. And then our focus is going to be on verses 18 to 21. Paul writes, look carefully then how you live, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, and singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, This is God's word. Came upon this quote earlier, um, reading through devotionally, a little book by A.W. Tozer called The Knowledge of the Holy. And he writes this, he says, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at any given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. Now it's real interesting as we look at this particular section, and remember, Ephesians five fifteen to chapter six, verse nine is one well knit unit within the entirety, the whole of chapters four to six. It's introduced with the words look carefully, so pay attention, watch how you walk, how you live. And then he closes, verse 21. It's very interesting. The whole is bracketed by the statement out of reverence for Christ. So being filled with the spirit, the way the community addresses to one another, speaks to one another, makes melody to the Lord, has the song of the gospel pounding in your heart, living a thankful life, a life of praise, and a life of submission to one another. All of that is governed by how amazing we think God is. Remember, I had read a couple weeks ago when we began this section out of the wisdom literature, the book of Proverbs chapter one, that said the foundation, the beginning, step one, not the maturity, not the elders, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. That sense of overwhelming awe, wonder at the majesty and glory of God. I'm going to work through this text, I'm going to teach it, but as I teach it, let me give you first the application question. And this is what I'm expecting you to participate and to work as I preach, okay? Here's what I want you to be thinking about. How amazed are you at God? How enamored are you with the beauty of God that is seen in both his majesty and glory, what theologians call his transcendence, his otherness, but also in the fact that he comes near. When God sent Jesus into the world, he gave him the word Emmanuel, which means God, the other, with us. And the majesty and glory of the God, I think one of the things that we need to recover today is a sense of the awe and the majesty, the glory of God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. I've shared this story with you before, but I've been here almost 13 years now. I can repeat stories from time to time. When I was a little kid, about seven years old, living in New York City, my father took me to my very first basketball game. We went to Madison Square Garden, the new Madison Square Garden on 34th Street, and it just opened up, and after we saw the New York Knicks, I think, beat the Baltimore Bullets. They were Baltimore then, not Washington. They were the Bullets, not the Wizards. Okay, He takes me out, he grabs me by the hand, and we're walking down, and we come to the very feet of the Empire State Building. I was seven years old, and all I can remember is looking up and up and up to what seemed to me, and I was seven, would never end. And I didn't know God, I wasn't a Christian, didn't have theology in my mind and stuff, but it was the first small sense, and I still remember the story of the fact that I was small in this universe, that there was something transcendent. Maybe you get it when you look at something of nature. Maybe when you look at the Hubble telescope. Maybe when you ponder how your how your body is made. A sense of your smallness and the fact that God is a God of majesty and glory, we need to recover. And all of these instructions that I'm about to teach, I know it's a lengthy introduction, are all governed and bracketed by that verse 21. And this is why I said out of reverence for Christ. So what is the sense you have? How much does it govern your daily life being amazed, being captivated, being gripped, being governed by the beauty and the majesty of God? Now, let's teach the passage. That's your application. That's what you're thinking about as we're working our way through this. Told you verse 15 is kind of the general heading. Look carefully how you live, how you walk. Then he gives a series of contrasts. He says, not as unwise, but as wise. Make the best use of your time. Don't be foolish. Contrast that with understand what the will of the Lord is. And here we have, verse 18 gives us the final contrast. He says, don't be drunk with wine. He's not saying you're never allowed a glass of wine, but don't be drunk with wine. He says, that leads to dissolute behavior. That's debauchery, but rather be filled with the spirit. So Paul's primary concern here is he's urging us and he's urging his readers to live by the power of the Spirit, to live by the Spirit continually. And he's describing what this looks like, what that Spirit-filled life and the Spirit-filled community looks like. And this is extremely crucial in this particular context of the letter, because Paul's bringing to a close the teaching that he began in chapter 4, verse 17, when he says, I want you to walk in a manner consistent with your calling. You're calling as children of God, as a new humanity. I want you to walk in a manner worthy or consistently with that. And he's about to head right into instructions regarding Christian relationships, specifically the Christian family. And verses 18 to 21, especially in the Greek, sometimes our English translations mask this or hide this, and they don't convey it well. But verses one eighteen to 21 is one long sentence in the Greek. If I was reading it, don't pause. Just keep going because it's five participles that describe or modify that command, be filled with the Spirit. It's almost like Paul saying, be filled with the Spirit, here's how. Some English translations like to make it five or six commands, be filled with the Spirit, address one another this way, sing to each other this way, submit to one another. That's not how the Greek reads. The Greek reads, be filled with the Spirit, and then it modifies it. In other words, Spirit-filled believers in a Spirit-filled community is characterized by lives of worship, joy, gratitude, and mutual submission. And in other words, so as we look at what characterizes a spirit-filled believer and a spirit-filled life, we're going to break it down this way. And remember, all of this is out of amazement at who God is. We're going to break it down this way, that a spirit-filled community is marked by two things. A God-centered fullness overflows in a God-centered life, not just formal, but life of worship. So reverence for Christ leads you to a God-centered fullness and a God-centered life of worship. Look with me at verse 18. Verse 18, he says, don't get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, I've got to remind us of the essence of the Spirit's work. We need to break this down a little bit that Andrew read for us out of the scripture reading in John chapter 16. Because the Spirit's work, Jesus says, and I just want you to picture this. Jesus is in the upper room with his 12 best friends, his followers that he's investing in and training because he knows he's about to leave this earth, give them the Spirit, and he's about to invest in them the work of building the church, building the kingdom. He's going to do this. Now, he says to them, and I don't think they have a clue what he's talking about. He says, it is to your advantage if I go away. How do you think they must have been feeling? They've had every meal with him. Some of them have given up jobs for him. They've left family for him. They've left homes for him. They do this. And now he says, well, my time here on earth is done. And by the way, it's for your own good. Don't you love when people tell you that? Goodness, I used to hate that when I was told that. It's for your own good. That would always get, I'd have to repent of rebellion afterwards with that one. But here is Jesus basically saying to Peter, James, and John, and the rest, it is to your advantage, it is for your own good if I leave you physically, because if I leave you physically, I'm going to send my spirit. Which immediately, part of our reverence for Christ and amazement, how amazed are you at the work of the spirit? There may be a change we need to make there and pay more attention to the work of the Spirit. Now, the essence of the work of the Spirit is given here in verse 14, when it says to take from what is Jesus's, bring glory to Jesus by taking from what is Jesus's and apply it, mediate it, appropriate it to our lives. That is how the Spirit goes about his work. And J.I. Packer, in a great book on the Holy Spirit called Keep in Step with the Spirit, he, he uses the following illustration to describe the essence of the Spirit's work. He says the Spirit is like a spotlight that is shining from its position onto Jesus Christ. So all the attention, everything goes on to Jesus. It's almost like the Spirit is continually saying, look at Jesus, look at Jesus, look at Jesus, which, by the way, in the way of application means we ought to be looking at more than just the cross, Am I saying don't look at the cross? Of course not. But I'm saying look at the cross and look at his humanity and look at the resurrection and look at how he treated people and look at his suffering and look at his speech. Look at his miracles. Look at what he said. Look at his promises. Look at his claims. Look at his prayer life. Look at every aspect of Jesus and his kingdom, his rule and reign. Because the Holy Spirit, the essence of how he's going about his work that we're about to see... What it means to be filled with him is, is to shine the spotlight to cause you to be more and more amazed, captivated, gripped by the person and work of Jesus Christ. Which means if it doesn't have anything to do with Jesus, it doesn't have anything to do with the spirit. Because the spirit is all about Jesus. Now, what is the content of this feeling? Again, breaking down some of the words, he says, be filled with the Spirit. We just spoke about how the Spirit is so other-centered in his demeaning. So I'm not sure be filled with the Spirit means simply be filled with the Spirit alone. So to understand this, what we need to do is look at how Paul, especially in his letter to the Ephesians, has used what I call fullness language and what commentators call fullness language so far in his letter. And there's a couple of very interesting places where Paul talks about what it means to be filled, fullness. 1 Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. Very interesting, he says, and he put all things under his feet, meaning God placed all things under Jesus' feet and gave Jesus as head over all things to the church. So here's God giving all things to Jesus for you and I. Pretty amazing when you think about what God thinks of us. He's placing all things under the feet of Jesus for our life, for us. And then it says the church, which is Jesus' body... And then it says, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now look at how Paul is using fullness language here. Because he's using this language to describe who and what we are in ourselves, in sharing in the life of Christ. We are Christ's body, and Christ's body is the fullness of God who fills all in all. Which means, very simply, that we, as Christ's body, already share in God's fullness. Parallel letter to Ephesians is the letter to the Colossians. And Paul says similar things when he says, for in Christ all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And Colossians 2, 9 and 10 says, for in him, in Christ, the whole fullness of deity, the fullness of what it means to be God dwells bodily. And then verse 10, he says, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. So follow this with me. The divine fullness is perfectly found in Christ, and from Christ, believers have already come to fullness of life. We share in that. We participate in that. But then, in Ephesians 3, verses 19 and 20, Paul prays for the church, and he prays that we would have strength to understand, to comprehend. And he says, together with all the saints... What is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of the love of Christ? And then he says, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. Then he gives the little word that, indicating purpose. I want you to know this love that is incomprehensible, that surpasses knowledge for this reason. So here's Paul at the hinge of this letter. The climactic petition is that, he, that you, together with all of us, so we as Spruce Creek Church, along with the whole church, would know the love of Christ for this reason that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. Paul is praying that we would know the love of Christ so that it would produce in us the fullness of God. So now what does all this mean? In light of all this, the content with which believers have been and are being filled is the fullness of the triune God. The fullness of the Spirit is the Spirit applying and mediating through the work of Christ the fullness of God and Christ to believers. As one commentator, Peter O'Brien, put it, he says, in other words, Paul's readers are to be transformed by the Spirit into the likeness of God and Christ. The Spirit is changing us more and more, progressively and progressively, into the image of God and Christ. In other words, the Spirit applies Christ Christ in whom the fullness of God dwells, so that we come to share in that fullness. Now, this is very consistent with the overall flow of Paul's teaching. Follow this with me. Because man is created in the image of God. We're made in the image of God. Therefore, what it means to be human, the definition of what it means to be a human being, is to be an image bearer, to reflect the personality, to reflect the glory of God. Christ is then is the perfect image of God. Thus, he is the perfect human being. He is the absolute perfect human. He is what it means to be human. And therefore, as we are changed more and more into the likeness of Christ, we more and more are conformed to the image of God, and we become more and more human. So to be a believer is to become more and more human. The Spirit is making us more and more human as the Spirit is applying Christ and appropriating the fullness of the triune God. Now, of course, we need to understand the tension that's in this. And the tension is what theologians call the already and the not yet. The fact that we've said that the church and believers already share in the fullness of God. We read that earlier in Ephesians 1, but then in Ephesians 3, Paul prays for us to be filled with the fullness of God which presupposes we don't experience it fully. We need to grow more and more into it. But there's, this is where we see what being filled, being continually filled with the Spirit means. It is that the Spirit is actively and powerfully working in us to transform us, to change us individually and as a church into the likeness of Christ, into the personality. That's why I asked, said at the beginning, how amazed are you at God? How amazed are you at the beauty of Christ? Do you only see one aspect of him? Or do you see his strength and his gentleness, his warrior-like courage and his unbelievable tenderness, his incredible holiness, and yet his grace and mercy, the fact that he's always truthful, and yet he never lets the opinions of other people sway him, He is the perfect human being, and to be filled with the Spirit is the Spirit is mediating and changing you into the fullness of the personality of God. That is a huge vision, what it means to be filled with the Spirit. Now, what does this look like in the life of the church? This looks like a life of God-centered worship and a life holistically. Yes, formal worship, but all of our life. Because follow with me, Paul has told his readers, and again I'm quoting a commentator who says, if drunkenness leads to dissolute behavior, spirit-filled Christians who are growing more and more into the fullness of the triune God, reflecting his personality, are characterized in their life by the song of the gospel, making melody to the Lord with all your being, thanksgiving, submission, conversation with each other that has the word of Christ dwelling in you. God-centered, what God is actively doing and working in your life. In other words, it is a life of worship, which is a life of joy and gratitude, a spirit-filled life filled with the fullness of God. What does he say? Addressing one another, giving thanksgiving, submission, singing and making melody to the Lord, with your heart. In essence what he's doing I think this is very reminiscent of the opening chapter Ephesians chapter 1. Paul's opening words of praise where he says praise and bless in other words the word is eulogy he's giving a blessing to God for every spiritual blessing that we have in Christ that's been lavished upon us and he's saying those who are filled with the spirit live their lives offering appropriate Praise to the triune God for all that he's given us in Christ. Which brings us back again to the question, how captivated are you by the beauty of God as it's revealed and seen in Christ and applied to us by the Spirit? Let me try to make this as practical as I can for us. It's difficult to make it practical. Let me try to make this as practical. I read one writer this week who illustrated it this way, and this is what I want you to think about it. He asked us to think, he says, what is the most beautiful thing you've experienced this week? And then he gave the following examples. He said, maybe it's something you heard, piece of beautiful music. He says, maybe it's something you saw in the world of creation or nature. I'm, I have to give this as an example to my, illustri- my example to my example, because during the first service, I'm sorry some of you weren't here, because during the sermon, while I'm preaching, about four or five sandhill cranes actually walked up to the window over there. I've actually never had that happen to me where God in his providence works. I said, did we experience something of the beauty of God's nature? Look this way. (laughs) And there it was. Maybe you experienced something in a relationship, a warm conversation with your spouse or with a close friend, holding your baby. Maybe it was a knowing glance. Maybe it was something you smelled, a rose, a flower, a good meal simmering or cooking. Maybe something you experienced at work, Some, a project finally came together, or a new opportunity opened up. But the point is, what is the most beautiful thing you experienced this week? And the writer says, hold that thought for a moment. Just hold it and ask yourself, what does that beauty do to you? Does it enrich you? He says, of course, yes. Does it warm you? Yes. He says, does it humble you? He says, well, yeah. You didn't cause that beauty. And he says, not only what the beauty does to you, but what does it call out from you? Does it call out gratitude, delight, joy? And he goes on to say, the word worship is defined literally as worthship, to accord worth, true value to something, to recognize and respect it for the truth, true worth it has. Now, he's giving that illustration with earthly things. Now consider the very beauty of God as it is revealed and demonstrated by Christ. What does the beauty of God as it is called forth in the humanity, in the person, in the relational way, and in the cross, and in the resurrection, and in the hope of things to come, call forth from you? Does it call forth a life of addressing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, which doesn't mean we walk around literally singing to one another, but it means does the Word of God dominate our thinking? Does the Word of God dwell richly within us? That the concepts, even, doesn't mean we walk around just spewing Scripture word for word like rote memorization and our heart's not in it, but the, the concepts, of the majesty and the glory and hope and the resurrection and God putting everything to rights and all that the Bible calls shalom that was accomplished by Christ and is being implemented by the Spirit, does it govern your conversations? Do you address one another with the message of the good news? Or, as too often in my own life, do I address everybody with sports and this and that? What governs, what captivates Our life. Even in the midst of our suffering, do we have the song of the gospel? Because I love the way the ESV says, making melody to the Lord with all our heart, which means with all our being. All our heart doesn't mean just your emotion. All your heart means your mind, your affections, your will, your volition, your emotion. You ever wonder why, why the Psalms describe worship the way they do? You know, you can get very confused reading the Psalms and thinking, what style of worship? Are they traditional or charismatic? Well, yeah. Come to the Lord with singing. Shout to the Lord with great cries. Of praise. Oh, by the way, come kneel before your maker. Be still and know that I am God. It calls forth from us, addressing one another, making melody to the Lord with all our hearts, being thankful. For everything, to God the Father, gratitude, Fight! I have to fight for joy in my life. I don't know about you. I have to fight for it. That's part of what the Spirit feels. I have to, and I need the work of the community. I need you as the community to help me enter into the fullness of God so I can fight for joy in my life and submitting to one another again out of reverence for Christ. There's both the vertical and the horizontal focus to the spirit-filled life of community, of worship, of praise, of thanksgiving, of mutual submission, of honesty. We are to be a people. So let me close as I opened. How gripped are you by the beauty of God? How gripped are you? How amazed are you out of reverence for Christ? Do you revere Christ? I don't know about you, but I need to daily recover the majesty and the glory of God. I need to daily recover the sense of the beauty of God. That's why the command is to be filled. Paul is urging his readers to continually be filled with the Spirit, which means to share in the fullness of the triune God. Let's pray. Father, I do pray that we grow into this kind of people, that we would be a Spirit-filled which in a sense means a triune God-filled people. People who live a God-full life and a God-centered life of worship. I pray that you'd captivate, captivate us by the beauty of Christ. That means we have to look away from ourselves. We have to look away from sometimes just what we're doing. I pray that our conversation, the way we address one another, the way we submit to one another, the way we look at each other, the way we honor each other, would we be befitting who we are in Christ. Lord, help us to be fully human. This new humanity that you have made through the work of Christ applied and implemented by the power of the Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.